0: We're in between lessons and our next one is about rethinking how prayer can help us work with our brains. And in particular to help us deal with the wired in instinct that we have to avoid change even when change is what we want. But until then, I'm doing a series of one- to two-week lessons, and we're having some other voices uh, in our community speak, and right now I'm in the middle of a two-week lesson, and I'm right in the middle of telling you a story. So I spent all of last week getting ready to tell you the story, and I told you about one of the darkest times in our Judeo-Christian history, a time when we let fear and a time when we let pain get the better of us. I spoke about how, under pressure to explain some very difficult existential questions, if we are God's people, how is it that we have been abandoned by God and have been overrun by and been carried off by the Babylonians? How, in that context, we talked about how we lost sight of one of our core truths. We forgot the mandate that we have been chosen for a mission A mission that we have on our wall there to bless all the nations, all the peoples of the earth. Forgetting that, we had a fear-based reaction. And that reaction even made it into some of our sacred texts that were penned after the exile. And those texts said this, don't pay attention to that. Stay away from the foreigner. Don't pay attention to that. Don't touch the foreigner. Don't eat with the foreigner. Don't associate with the foreigner. And certainly don't invite the foreigner into your family. Don't do what Naomi did for Ruth. Don't bring the solitary into families as has been enjoined to us in Psalm 68. Don't bring the lonely into your own circle as Psalm 68 tells us to do. Instead... Keep yourself pure of the foreigner stain. And keep yourself ritually pure. Don't even touch the outsider. Don't even touch the stranger. Ignore one of the major themes of our heritage. Backtrack on that theme. Reverse that theme. And that fear-based response that kind of kicked in right after the Babylonian exile hung around for the next 600 years because when Jesus told the story of the good Samaritan, it was the residue from this time that he was challenging. Because in that story, the good religious person wanted to stay ritually pure. So much so that both of those religious characters in Jesus' story would rather let a man die than to defile their lives by touching the foreigner. And so, we lost our way. We cast prejudice into religious terminology. One of the most dangerous combinations. We put prejudice into the mouth of God. And we lost our way. We enshrined bigotry into our sacred texts. That's what people do when they face existential crisis. That's what people do when they face deep Crushing pain. That's what happens. That's what happened. We lost our way. But as has been our theme through this year, we lose our way. Surely we do. But just as surely as we lose our way, we find it yet again. Now, the story of Jonah is memorable to many of us. Many of us learned the story of Jonah in Sunday school. And as children, we suspended disbelief and we imagined ourselves under the sea and we imagined ourselves in the belly of a fish and we imagined ourselves on an adventure of fantastic proportions. But the story is also memorable to many of us because this was one of the first stories that we began to doubt when we became teenagers. Come on now, adults, are you trying to fool me? Did a big fish really swallow Jonah? Isn't a fish's belly full of water? Wasn't he going to drown inside the belly anyway? Or isn't a fish's belly full of digestive juices? And did this fish really spit Jonah out on the land of all the places in the vastness of the sea? He couldn't have spit Jonah out in the middle of the ocean where he would have drowned anyway? Come on adults, are you serious about this thing? And so for many of us, if we grew up in church, it is a memorable story. And for many of us, we have some baggage around the story, which is why I spent so much time last week putting it into its historical context. Before I tell you the story, I want to also give you a little bit of the literary context, because the genre of literature that it is kind of informs how we understand it. For many of us uh, who have baggage around the story, it was given to us as a history. It was a historical document. So before I tell you the, retell you the story, I want to say it wasn't written as history. It was written as a parable. It was written as a morality tale. And if you were told as a child that it was history, I have to extend an apology to you on behalf of your church, because here's what was happening that made that happen. There were a lot of battles going on in the church about what the Bible is and more pointedly what the Bible is not. And depending on which side of the battle your church was on when you were taught the story of Jonah, there's a very good chance that your teachers would not have had permission to teach you the story as a non-factual tale, as a fable like Aesop's Fables. They would not have had permission to do that because to do so would have violated a creed that they were fighting so hard to protect over here on this front or going with this battle. If they were going to win this battle, they had to then be consistent over here with the story of Jonah. And because of these internal struggles going on in the church at the time you were taught this story, many times we painted ourselves into a corner. And we've limited the number of ways in which we have been allowed to think about our scriptures. And if that happened to you, I really am sorry. Because it happened to me as well. And that is where we are. But the story, in this case, the story of Jonah, fits into a genre of literature called the wisdom parable. Or the morality tale. It was written to be read in the city square. It was penned by a prophet as a way of calling the people back to a truth from which they had wandered. Now, if you've never read the story, I would encourage you to do so later today. And here's a brief sketch of what you'll find were you to read the book of Jonah. An unknown prophet told a story about another prophet, a wayward prophet, whose name was Jonah. Jonah was the main character in this unknown prophet's story. And Jonah was a man of his time. And was convinced that God wanted the Israeli people to stay away from all foreigners. Like the people of his day, Jonah believed that God rejected all the same people that Jonah rejected. And so he represented the mainstream of his day. Anybody who was hearing the story of Jonah being read in the city square on that day knew exactly what he thought, knew exactly what he believed because he thought and he believed the same thing that they thought and they believed. Jonah was the prototypical man of his time. He had all the right prejudices in place. So, it was particularly surprising in the story when Jonah heard the voice of God, that's what prophets do, heard the voice of God saying, go to Nineveh. That took them by surprise. And not only go there, not only be polluted by and corrupted by direct and intimate contact with the foreigner, but also invite them into the same kind of divine life experience that good Hebrews had come to be accustomed to as their own heritage, as their own spiritual experience. Well, of course, Jonah balked. And as the story is being read aloud in the city square, everybody hearing it, all the good religious people knew exactly why he had balked, because God would never say such a thing. God was very clear on the subject. We have some scriptures that tell us so, albeit relatively recent scriptures, but we have some scriptures here that tell us we are to avoid the stranger, avoid the foreigner. But in the story being read that day in the city square, the divine voice was rather relatively insistent. It just kept coming back to the same thing, going against everything Jonah had ever been taught, going against everything that anybody who was listening to the story had ever been taught. And in that story, God just kept insisting. So Jonah did what powerless people do when they face an overwhelming power. He said yes, but he meant no. He thought, I will pretend to go to Nineveh and perhaps God will forget this crazy mandate. But when he got to the docks after he had gone home and packed up all his belongings, clearly God is watching me pack my baggage. Clearly God is watching me walk to the docks. Now God has stopped watching me and instead of getting on the boat to Nineveh, he gets on the boat to Tarshish. And there the boat sails out into the bright and beautiful Mediterranean. And Joan is feeling very good about how things are going. He has cleverly figured out how to keep his own prejudices intact. But more to the point, he has saved God from making an egregious error in judgment. And everything is going along swimmingly. No pun intended. (laughs) Until a storm cloud crops up. And all the navigational effort that they can marshal can't get them around it. And there is lightning and there are claps of thunder and there are torrents of rain and the people listening in the city square are envisioning this great danger that has come upon them, this tiny ship, a speck of flotsam in an angry sea. And the captain, in a moment of clairvoyant insight, turns to Jonah and says, What did you do, Jonah? (laughs) Why is God hounding us? And the people listening to the story Watch for Jonah's response. And Jonah says, well, and there in the city square, people begin to snicker. There is this one little thing that I did. God did tell me to go elsewhere and do something completely different. And by now the snickers have become laughter. But listen to the crazy thing that God told me to do, Jonah says to the captain. God told me to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, for God's sake, what is he thinking? Doesn't God know that the Ninevites are foreigners? Doesn't God know that the Ninevites are the outsiders? Doesn't God know know that they are the corrupting force? That they are the reason and fraternizing with their like was why we got carried off into Babylonian exile in the first place? Come on, captain, what else could I do? And the captain, even though he seemed to have this tremendous insight into what was going on, agreed and bought his argument. He said, you are right, man. Of course. Now that you explain things, of course you got on our boat. It was the only logical thing to do. They're Ninevites. Except by now, the waves are crashing over the deck and threatening to drown them all. And faced with Jonah's very reasonable, prejudiced argument, and faced with certain death, the captain sides with God. (laughs) Well, listen, my friend. He says, I understand your predicament. I really do. But clearly a sacrifice has has to be made. And though it doesn't seem fair to you, because after all, they are Ninevites. But again, a sacrifice has to be made. So it appears your number is up, my friend. Overboard you go. And the story goes, before Jonah could drown, the storm subsides. A big fish gulps him up. And for three days, Jonah sets up shop inside the fish who then spits him out, interestingly, just walking distance from Nineveh. But the storyteller notes prejudices die hard. And even after all that drama, even after all of that tumult and upheaval, even though it was clear Jonah was not going to get away with defying the wishes of God, nevertheless, he still held on to his prejudice, and he did what God said, But he just tried really hard not to do it very well. So instead of going to the city square, which is what prophets did in those days, he went to the quiet and empty back alleys. Instead of shouting the message of God in that central place, he simply muttered it, hoping against hope that nobody would listen. Because they were foreigners after all, and they had no business turning to God. They had no business turning to our God. But sadly, those damn foreigners, they listened. And then they responded, and then they turned away from darkness, and they turned toward the light and the life of God, and the storyteller put into Jonah's mouth the words that were on the minds of everyone in the city square that day who was hearing that story, and he said, "'Why did you send me here, God?' Because now they have repented and now you are obligated to forgive them. And now you're going to have to invite them in. And why? They do not deserve to be forgiven. They do not deserve to be invited in. They are the enemy. They are the foreigner. They are the outsider. Do you hear me? They are foreigners. And so Jonah stopped away. Stomped away with indignant anger, and he went up on a hill overlooking the city. It was more than a sulk, he was just livid. Down there in that town are all those base, unacceptable foreigners, and they're singing his songs. They're singing songs about God's amazing grace, they're singing his songs about we are forgiven. They're singing his songs about the light of God is within us. Damn. And that night he fell asleep. A miserable, bigoted, angry man. And in that night, a tree cropped up and grew very rapidly over him. And during the next hot day, shaded under its broad leaves, he formed an attachment to that tree. He still resented the foreigners at the bottom of the hill, but he loved the tree. And then the next night when he fell asleep, when he awoke, a worm had eaten the tree and it was now dead. And the thing is, he had formed an attachment the day before to that tree, and he actually wept over the loss of the tree. He mourned, he genuinely grieved, until the whisper of God came to his heart, so Jonah You grieve over a tree that has given food to the worm. But you have no pity for, you have no love for, you have no sense of camaraderie with the 120,000 people who are in that city below you. The very ones that God commissioned you as a child of Abraham to bless, all you want is for God to come and cause them suffering and death and destruction. You are a hard, hard man, Jonah. You are a heartless, heartless man. And the story ends right there. You are a hard, hard man, Jonah. You are a heartless, heartless man. And this unknown storyteller who has been lost to the sands of time was a genius. Was he, because he got the people to laugh at his character, Jonah. And when they laughed at him, they were laughing at themselves. He helped them to ridicule the foolish and the calloused and the bigoted and the prejudiced mindset. And in so doing, this author helped them to ridicule themselves. In their own judgment being cast on Jonah's foolishness, they were passing judgment on their own hearts. This brilliant author held up a mirror to their souls. He helped them see the distortion in their own hearts. And he helped them see the truth that resides in every one of us because the Spirit of God resides within us. That it is the way of God to include, not To exclude. But excluding feels good. In kind of an obscene way, prejudice can make us feel secure when we're feeling frightened. Prejudice against them forces us to form a stronger bond between us. We get to be a more linked together and a more more strongly connected us when we put ourselves against. Them, and we do that. We human beings, we do it today. We've done it through history. Jews and Ninevites do it, as do Jews and Palestinians. Christians and Muslims do it. Jews and, or Catholics, Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants have done it. Straight people and gay people do it. White folks and black folks do it. Republicans do it, Democrats do it. When we feel frightened, when the world feels shaky under our feet, one of the cheapest and easiest ways to make ourselves feel better is to find some other to be against and then to demonize the other, to dehumanize the other, to really other the other because that strengthens the bond between us. It's us against them. And now we stick more closely together and that feels good. We get to do that. It is a right and privilege that it is afforded us by our very natures. We get to do that if we want. But when we do, we also have to pay the price of doing so. Because when we do that, it shrinks our worlds down It makes our world's hostile places. It makes our world an aggressive place. It makes us argumentative and it makes us harsh. It makes us unfriendly and it makes us unlistening. And once we've done that, man, did it make us feel safe. But now we have to live in a hostile and aggressive and argumentative and unfriendly and unlistening world. And then, living in that antagonizing world, though we feel safer, what we have done is we have sold love and joy and peace and patience. We have sold kindness and goodness and grace and mercy. We have sold forgiveness and we have sold being forgiven and we've sold it all for a bowl of porridge. We've sold it for a narrow band of camaraderie in the throes of a wild and dangerous world. Narrowing our understanding down to this group being us and them being them, that's always a temptation. And many of us in our community have, because of this moment in history and because our souls have been languishing, we've done some severe rethinking of the spiritual life. Many of us in this community have some, done some dramatic thinking about our religious narratives. We've done some very strong rethinking of what it means to be Christian. We've gone back further in history than the last 500 years and we've come to some deepened understandings. And that happens in certain moments and it has happened for us and it has created a deepened experience for many of us of the spirit of the risen Christ. We have come to A more expansive, a more gracious, a more healing view and experience of God, of Jesus, of what it means to be saved. That has happened. And since it has, it's a very easy thing to do. I see it happening all the time in books that I read and podcasts that I listen to. It's a very easy thing to do. And you hear me warn us as a community about it all the time. It's a very easy thing to do to get smug and comfortable in a newly narrowed, version of us. Us, the enlightened ones, versus them, the traditional ones. Also, many of us have traveled a long way from where we started the spiritual journey, especially in regard to how we think about and how we treat gay people. And it would be easy for us, self-satisfied with this great gulf that we have traveled as to be as enlightened as we are, to otherize those who have not traveled this great distance. I was speaking with an African-American person after some of the several young black men that were uh, so hostily killed or mistreated in our culture. And this person said, well, of course I feel grief over the sense of loss of life. But even more than that, this person said, I feel a deep, pain that when I go to work and I am surrounded by white people every day, they don't seem to feel any of that hurt at all. It's like this grief is not their grief. Our grief is not their grief. And I had to say I am really sorry because that is true more often than not because many of us white people put you in this nice tidy category of other. We've got our own problems over here You are different, you are other, you have your problems over there. We may be enlightened enough not to wish ill towards you, but come on, we've got the pain of our own problems, you feel the pain of yours. And that's just the way it goes. It's the way this world works. It's the way it happens between gay people and straight people, between conservative people and progressive people, between black people and white people between Christian people and Muslim people, between quantum Christians and traditional Christians, it goes that way. And it will continue to go that way until a brilliant storyteller gets us to laugh at ourselves. Or until we cross the gulf between us and we begin to hear one another's stories. Until we stop casting the other as a cardboard cutout That represents an issue. Because an issue is a nice, safe, tidy way of insulating myself from the pain that would overrun me if I had to feel the pain of all these other categories. So it's nicer if it's just an issue. It will continue to happen until we invite the experience of the other into our own lives and see the other as a living, breathing, maybe hurting human being. That's why we're doing this discovery dialogue, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that. It'll be a good experience. It usually is. I'd encourage you to sign up. But more than that, it trains us in an important skill that is lost in our culture. And that is to be able to listen to someone who is so keenly different from ourselves. To be able to hear a story and resonate with a story that is not our own story. It's an important skill in a world of others. The way of God, the way of truth, and the way of life comes with a call. And that call is to come out from the confining little worlds of us and them. It's a call to sensitize our ears to be able to hear the stories of the other. To be able to understand the life and to be able to understand the hurt of the other. At the beginning of this year, some of our 2014 work was to raise some money to uh, build orphan houses in Haiti. And as we began that process, I had several conversations with people, and I heard secondhand about several more conversations that if you distilled all those conversations down to a single one, it might have gone something like this: Why are we raising money to send to Haiti a far-away place? when there is real need right here in our own NRCC community why are we raising money to send to Haiti a faraway place when there is real need right here in our own city in our own county when there is real need right here in the triangle why send our dollars and our energies to a faraway place when we could be spending them more close by so In one of these many lessons that's coming up before we start our next lengthy one, I'm going to tell you the story of Haiti. I'm going to tell you the story of how life in Haiti came to be the way that it is. And hopefully I will tell that story well enough that they will stop being them and we can hear that they also are us. The story of Jonah isn't just about Haiti And it's not just about traditional Christians, and it's not just about Muslims, and it's not just about racial dividedness or political dividedness. The story of Jonah can also be about the irritating co-worker. Because it's very easy to put the irritating co-worker into the them status because they have some negative behavior. That person just gets so angry. And it's so easy to see their character flaw when they get so angry. So I don't have to listen to that story anymore. I don't have to hear that pain anymore because clearly their behavior is so egregiously wrong. Or I, could dispi- I can dismiss the pain and the need of the single parent because they made their choice. Or the addict. They made their choice. Or the social outcast or the angry person with a cause, I can dismiss all of them because it would be too difficult for me to have to understand them. I can dismiss them because now that they are categorized as an issue, anger problems, as an issue, sexuality problems, as an issue, substance problems, then I don't have to hear their story and I don't have to feel their wounds and I don't have to consider their lives. They are them. This is one of the ways that we lose our way. And our forebears have spoken to us and in particular this master storyteller has spoken to us and he says, yes, you can live that way. But it is not the God way. It is not the true living way. It is not the way of truth way. And consequently over the long haul it just will not work. You can do it. But if you do you have to factor this in. You will suffer the consequences of your decision. So don't. The wisdom of our forebears says. Don't go that way. Be brilliant, as I've said in previous lessons. Learn from the mistakes of others. Learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before. Don't otherize. Don't dismiss them. Don't retreat into the comfortable security of us. Just don't do that. So, Spirit of God, may we learn from the wisdom of our ancestors. May we learn from those who have lost their way but found it again. And may we, in the learning, circumvent our own lostness, find our way. May we live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.